Hey, good morning, Faith Family. Thanks for joining us for our teaching time this morning. And today we are concluding our series called Story of My Life. Over the past uh, few months, we've been on this journey through the book of Acts, looking at how people converted from one way of thinking to following Jesus. Uh, And we started this whole journey by looking at what is conversion and talking about some of the misrepresentations of conversion and how it actually is moving from one system of thought to another system of thought, moving from a man-centric way of thinking to a God-centric way of thinking to eventually a Christ-centric, grace-centric way of living and believing. It's It's a personal, intentional choice. That's what we started with. And then for the last few weeks, we've been looking at examples throughout the book of Acts of people that actually did that and who they were, what prompted the conversation, what was the actual point of conversion, and then what was the product of transformation in their lives and in culture. And we on this journey seen people that were far from God initially move very close to God, people that were just maybe living in fear, change and start to live out of faith. We've seen people uh, like Paul, who was antagonistic toward the gospel, who then become a, a champion of the gospel. We've seen people that just are, are a little bit off in their belief system come around and and get it all right and get it functioning in their life. And we've even seen this in the stories of our own people and our own church family. Many of you have shared your own story of how you went from one way of thinking to a Christ-centric, a gospel way of thinking. And as we come to the end of this series today, we're, we're going to kind of, you know, end cap it the way we started it by, by looking at a concept that I think sometimes we can misrepresent and misunderstand. And it's a concept that has been put out throughout all of these stories that when it talks about, uh, Paul or Silas or other believers talking to people, it says they told the story of God. Now, they told the, the words of the Lord to them, and then they believed, and their whole household believed, their whole, many in the city believed. And so, what I want us to do is to look today at what is the story of the Lord, which is the way our, we defined it culturally, religiously, spiritually, in our sense today, is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, the word gospel actually means good news. What is the good news of Jesus? So if that's what they were out there telling people and having them convert, I want to make sure we as individuals, we as a church, are very clear on what the gospel is. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? The truth is, our culture, our Western culture, our American culture has, you know, maybe radically changed that understanding, especially over the last few years by, you know, embracing certain ideologies that add on to the gospel or connecting it with certain, you know, other ideas and philosophies and saying these two things have to go together. I want I want to boil, boil it down and say this is what what is the gospel. And this is exactly what happens in the second part of chapter 18 of the book of Acts. So, we're actually going to continue in the story, but we're going to see that that this actually happens in this story. There's a clarification of what the story of God is. And that's what I want us to do this morning. Saying, what is the gospel? So let's get you caught up. Acts chapter 18. Again, Paul, remember, had been in Corinth. 
Uh, he hung out there for a while. We, we learned last week he spent at least 18 months there is when he began to write the gospel uh, or some of the letters that he was sending to churches. And and through that, he, he wasn't just preaching the gospel. He was really living out the gospel. And that made an impact in so many people's lives. Uh, people he was frustrated with uh, even came to, to faith in Christ. And so uh, now we're going to pick up in chapter 18 as he's beginning to end his time in Corinth and move on somewhere else. And, and this story that we're going to look at today doesn't really center around Paul, even though it starts with Paul. So let's look at chapter 18, uh, verse 18, and it says this. After this, all that time in Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. All right, remember who Priscilla and Aquila were? They were the tent makers in Corinth with him. These are the ones he'd been hanging out with uh, for at least a year and a half doing life with. And they had fallen in love with Paul and Paul had fallen in love with them so much when he decided to leave. They said, well, let's go together. Let's figure out what's next in our life together. And so they they set sail. They head uh, toward uh, Ephesus and some other areas that Paul had been before. And while there, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila decide you know what, Paul needs to head back toward Caesarea and Jerusalem for a while, and Priscilla and Aquila were going to stay in Ephesus. It's where Paul had been. There was a church going there, and they were going to stay and help strengthen the church. So they came with Paul, then Paul leaves them in Ephesus, and he goes on, and this is where verse 24 picks up. It says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Which means right here, he knew the story of Jesus, the history of Jesus. But the baptism of John represents here the idea that he he had maybe had a baptism of repentance of going Jesus says some good things, but he had not had the baptism of the Spirit where he had fully surrendered to Christ. So he was a great spokesperson for Jesus, but maybe he wasn't quite yet fully a follower of Jesus. Verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. All right, beautiful story here. This guy, Apollos, is doing great. He is out proclaiming the story of Jesus. But it says when Priscilla and Aquila saw him and heard him, they knew that there was just something missing. He was talking about Jesus more so than speaking from a relationship with Jesus. He knew who Christ was. He knew the story of Jesus. Maybe even believed the story of Jesus, that he was, you know, had been raised from the dead and all of these things. But yet he had not had this personal experience. So what is it to know the way of God more accurately here? This is what it said Priscilla and Aquila did. They helped him to know the way of God more accurately. What do we know about Apollos uh, that it says in scriptures? When we, we know that Apollos knew the scriptures. It says that he taught the scriptures well. He did a, he, 
He was not ignorant. He was not probably a brand new student of the scriptures. It said he knew the scripture. So understanding the way of God more accurately is not just knowing more scripture because he already knew a lot. It also, we, we know that Apollos knew the story of Jesus because it says that he was speaking the story of Jesus accurately. So he knew that he had been born of a virgin, had lived 33 years, lived a perfect life, had you know been crucified and raised again and ascended into heaven. He knew the facts of the story. So even knowing the facts about Jesus is not knowing the way of God more accurately because he knew the story of Jesus. Also, we, we can see here that he was an eloquent speaker. It says that he spoke well, he spoke with fire, he was, he was fueled by the Spirit. He was eloquent, he was good. He was saying things with passion and eloquence. And so learning to become a better speaker, have a better presentation of the story of Jesus also was not what it meant for him to know the way of God more accurately, to, to memorize something new or to, or to have a, a new presentation. He, he was very good at giving presentations and speaking. And so it wasn't that to know the way of God more accurately. And then it, it also says that he was a very bold person, that he went out and spoke and he wouldn't be discouraged. He, he was a bold speaker. And so knowing the way of God more accurately is also not just being more fervent are more willing to go talk about the story of Jesus in the scriptures. And this throws us off a little bit, right? Because I think many of us have been told, what well, you know, as long as I understand a little bit of scriptures and, and where they come from, and, and I know the story of Jesus, and I can articulate it in some way, and, and I'm bold enough to talk about it when other people ask me about it, that's the accurate, that's the way of God, right? But yet Priscilla and Aquila saw all of this in him, and yet they saw something missing, and they pulled him aside and said, we need to help you better understand the way of God. He was missing part, not part of the story, but he was missing the heart of the story, that Jesus just isn't a story. Jesus wasn't just a person. But it says in verse 28 of this chapter, it says they showed that by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Jesus wasn't just a story, wasn't just a person. Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the way of hope and salvation for all mankind. Somewhere along the way, we and, and even Apollos in this moment had missed this truth, even though we may claim to be Christians, followers of Christ. And so I want us to wrap this series up today with talking to you in the same way that Priscilla and Aquila talked to Apollos to explain the way of God more accurately. And that's what exactly Paul had been doing with Priscilla and Aquila and so many others. Every place he stopped, he was explaining the way of God, not just boldly and passionately, not just telling a story or using scriptures to back it up, but a story, his story with Jesus, how it had changed his life, how the gospel, the good news of Jesus could be understood in an accurate way to transform your life. And so I'm going to do what I like to often do when we start down a journey of trying to push back on one way of thinking and embrace a new way of thinking is to tell us some things that the gospel is not. 
because I believe the gospel, that term at least, not the, not the truth of it, but the term of it has been hijacked in many ways. It's been equated to things that is not here. And this is where I think what Priscilla and Aquila were doing with Apollos is saying, I want to make you sure you understand the story of Jesus is not this, it's, it's this. And so let me start by just telling you some things the gospel isn't. The gospel is first and foremost, it's not a label. It's not an, a label like evangelical Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, conservative, liberal. It is not a label. It's not a, it's not something I get to wear on my chest. The gospel is not a label. It is a new life. It's a way that I became a new creation. I, I was one way and now I'm a completely different way. It's not just an extra label to put on me. But the gospel is also not this. The gospel isn't a ticket to heaven. It, it, that we often think that the gospel is just, well, okay, if I got to pray to Jesus to get me into heaven when I die, that's what I'll do. It isn't just a ticket to heaven. It is an eternal, past, present, future, eternal experience. It's something that I experience not just after I die. It's something I experience today. It's something that affects how I view my past and how I'm going to experience my future. Third thing is this. The gospel is not a political movement. It's not. It's not attached to one party or the other. It's, it's not designed to overthrow governments and establish Christians as kings and rulers. It's not. Jesus didn't even do that. He shied away from that. It's not a political movement. It is a personal transformation. Personal transformation. That something changed in me when I accurately understood the way of God, the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is. And then the gospel also isn't just a moral code. It's not just new standards to live by, new rules to live by. It is me getting to operate as an ambassador of Christ, taking his hope to all mankind, taking what I've experienced, not to rule over people, but to bring the same hope and healing into their life that he brought into mine. And a couple other things. The, the gospel isn't a Western religion. You know, Christianity is often viewed as a Western religion. You have Islam and Buddhism and others that may be viewed as Eastern religions. I just want to clear something up very quickly. Christianity, the gospel, is not a white man's religion. It is something that transcends every culture, tribe, and tongue. It is not something that white man experienced that we get to share with everybody else. It is something that God gave to all of mankind, period. And, and for some reason, it has been hijacked into a Western English white man's religion. And that's not it's a farther thing than what the gospel is. And then finally, the gospel is not man-centric, right? This list of things I have to do to make God love me puts the burden on me. The gospel is actually composed and created by God alone. I had nothing to do with it. You had nothing to do with it. It is God's beautiful composition of salvation that he delivered to mankind. So that's what the gospel isn't. It isn't this label, a ticket to heaven, a political movement, a moral code, some Western white religion or a man-centric way of thinking. It is so much more than that. And I want to tell you personally, to finish up our time this morning, how I've experienced it 
in my life and how you can too. Maybe you would find yourself like Apollos and go, I think I understand the scriptures. I understand why we need, you know, a savior. I understand who Jesus was. And, you know, I, I, I don't mind talking about it with others. And, you know, I, you teach me what to say and I'll say it. Maybe this morning, I know there was a time in my life when I knew all of those things. I grew up in church. I knew all of those things. I knew the story of Jesus. I'd been baptized when I was younger. I'd done all the things that I was supposed to do. I was at church when I was supposed to be at there. But the truth is I had no relationship with the gospel, with Jesus. I I was empty. I I wanted peace in my life, but it wasn't there. I wanted good things to happen in my life, but I always felt like I was behind. there, There was no meaning, no hope until I had someone explain to me the true way I've got the true gospel of Jesus and and how I relate to that. And so I just want to give you what that is this morning in my life and how I've experienced and I think how we experience when it comes to how scripture explains what the gospel is. So the gospel, what is it? First and foremost is this. It is a moment of humility so that you and I can experience eternal peace. A moment of humility to experience eternal peace. Now, what do we have to humble ourselves to? You have to humble yourself to the idea that there is a God. James 4.10 says it this way. Humble yourselves before the Lord and then he will exalt you. Right? Humble comes first. Humble yourself before the Lord first and then you'll be exalted after that. And, you know, we go, humble yourself to the idea there's a God. I I can do that. But I actually believe this is more difficult than it sounds. Because maybe we'll admit there's a God. But you know what? We love to keep playing the role of God. We love to keep acting like we are God. And and culturally, many there are many in our culture who would admonish the idea that there's even a God. And you cannot experience the gospel if you do not start with this moment of humility that says there's a God out there. There's something beyond mankind. And this, this has been happening from the beginning of time, right? Look, whether you believe the story of Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent is, is literal or allegorical, the truth is exactly the same. From the beginning, God desired to have an intimate relationship with his creation, you and me. That was his desire. He created us for intimacy with him, for connection with him. But from the very beginning, we have looked at his position as creator and we have turned jealous and rebellious. We desire to sit in the seat of power, to believe that even with our limited experience, our limited wisdom, our limited understanding and our lack of capacity to love unconditionally, that we could do a better job than God. And not only running our lives, but ordering the universe as well. This is where we choose to not humble ourselves. And when we don't humble ourselves, I want you to understand, sir, there is no peace. There is no peace for the king who does not know how to rule. And if I put myself in charge of my life fully and in charge of the ordering of this universe, there will be no peace because I do not know how to rule those. I do not know how to rule those with ultimate wisdom, ultimate understanding, and with unconditional love. There is no peace for a king that does not know how to rule. And there is no calm for a heart that constantly desires 
to be more than it's designed to be. And this is why humbling ourselves to the fact, the idea that there is a God is key to start with. Humble yourself and then the Lord exalts us. He elevates us because we are submitting to him. This is where eternal peace comes from. Not from winning the rebellion, winning the fight against God, but from a moment of humility. So what does this moment of humility cause us to believe? This, that there is a God and I'm not it, nor will I ever be or should I be. We have to believe that. That's what humility says. There is a God, I'm not it, nor will I ever be or should I be. So the gospel starts with a moment of humility to help us begin to experience eternal peace. But then there's a second moment of the gospel, and it's a moment of surrender so that you and I can experience eternal meaning. A moment of surrender to experience eternal meaning. What do you need to surrender yourself to? Surrender yourself to the idea that Jesus was God in the flesh. Right? 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this, there is one God, the Father, right? That God we said we need to believe in, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And this is why this is a moment of surrender. I want you to hear this this morning. There is no gospel without the deity of Jesus. It's just not. There is no gospel. It is then man striving to please this God who we can never live good enough lives for. That's what it boils down to at that point. But there, there is no gospel without the deity of Jesus. Without the deity, he is simply another man trying to tell other men and women what to do and how to live their lives based on a limited experience, limited wisdom, limited understanding, and lack of capacity to love unconditionally. If he wasn't really, he wasn't just a really, really good man, because even a really, really good man doesn't have full understanding, full experience, full love, he would fall short. He would, he would lead selfishly sometimes. He would act in his own, for his own desires and use others, and he wouldn't understand the full picture. I want you to understand this this morning. Jesus wasn't just a really, really good man. He was the God man. God in the flesh. This is a fact we have to surrender to. You know, maybe you and I can humble ourselves to the idea of a distant God that is out there that we can somehow connect with through some cosmic or spiritual force or practice. But the idea that God humbled himself to become a man is both supernatural and radical. And to experience the gospel, this is something, this is a belief we have to surrender to. You can choose not to. You can always look to self to try to find somebody, another man out there just wiser than you, or another woman out there wiser than you, but they're going to let you down too. They don't have ultimate knowledge, ultimate understanding, and ultimate love. This is why knowing that Jesus was fully God, full understanding, full justice, full understanding, full, full uh, wisdom, and all that he did, full unconditional love for all mankind. This is what made every action perfect. He didn't just 
guessed to get it right and got it right 100% of the time, what he did was right because he was God. And this is hard. Surrender is something, is not something we long for. It's actually, you know, but it's actually where true meaning comes from in our life. How? When we are bested by someone, it isn't always a bad thing. Someone beat us because they're stronger, smarter, wiser, more experienced. And when we surrender to them, we can start to learn from them, especially if the one who bested us is a benevolent, loving, and gracious Lord like Jesus is. He wasn't trying to best us to, to beat us. He's better than us because he's God. And he bested us so that we can begin to grow in that wisdom and understanding. This means this, and this is key. Surrender isn't the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of truly understanding meaning and purpose and identity in our lives. Through him, this is what the verse says, through him we exist. So what do we have to believe here? Just as we had to believe that there's a God and I'm not it, nor will I ever be or should I be, when this, with this moment of surrender, what do we have to believe? Here's what we believe. That Jesus was God in the flesh and a worthy to be my Lord. We have to believe that. And not a story. It's not just this beautiful story of Jesus, this guy who fed thousands of people and healed people and had some good sayings. He was God in the flesh, which makes him worthy to be my Lord, for me to surrender to. So the gospel is a moment of surrender for eternal meaning. Now, I think there's a third moment that we have to step into, especially once when we can understand there is a God and that Jesus was that God in the flesh. And it leads us to this third moment, which is a moment of repentance to experience eternal pleasure. You and I have a moment of repentance to experience eternal pleasure. What do we need to repent of? Repent of the rebellion in your life that is birthed from a sinful and selfish heart. First John 1, 8 and 9 says it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so there's a God. I'm not it. God came to this earth in human form, Jesus, and is worthy to be our Lord. Great. However, this knowledge, just that knowledge, is not the fullness of the gospel. Knowledge doesn't save. It doesn't. Knowledge without action only puffs up, puffs us up, makes us more arrogant, more selfish, more sinful. Knowledge does not equal action. And this is where the moment of repentance comes in. And the true impact of this knowledge that there is a God and that Jesus was that God will make us decide to act in one way or the, or the other. And the action that we have to choose is either to follow our ways or his ways once we have that knowledge. It's to acknowledge that, that my ways are, are not right, the right ways. My thoughts are not the highest thoughts. My attitude is not impartial. My desires are from a selfish heart. This knowledge brings us to a point of admission, right? So it says in 1 John 1, 8, 9, that 
if we act like we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So I am, I am first admitting that I have sin. I'm stopping to deceive myself any longer. To act like I've got it all together. To act like my thoughts are the best thoughts and I'm not selfish. No, I am. You are. That's why our world is in the shape it is. That's why our lives often fall apart. Because we live with this trying to act like we don't need any outside help. So it brings us first to this point of admission that we are sinners. But then secondly, it brings us to a point of repentance. And this is when it says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to cleanse us. And I want you to talk about this idea of repentance. Because when we hear that word, we usually think, oh, it's just me. I got to tell God I'm sorry for what I did. Repentance isn't feeling bad or feeling sorry for something. It literally means, the word repentance literally means to start to move in a new direction. To stop trusting our ways and start following his ways. Repentance elevates elevates the teachings and actions of Jesus and minimizes the inadequacy of my own desires and directives. But this, I want you to understand, when we hear that, we go, oh, that's painful, right? I don't get to be what, I don't get to have what I want to have. I don't get to be who I would really want to be. And if I follow Jesus, I repent. I admit I'm a sinner. Like, I'm going to owe him. There's things I'm going to have to do. He's going to make me make choices I don't want to do. I'm going to have to be boring and serious my entire life. And we think of repentance as painful. It's not. Repentance isn't painful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Left to our own desires and directives, we move toward destruction and death. You want to argue this? We've lived selfishly. Who who has lived selfishly in their life and not left a path of destruction either in their own life or the lives of others? Maybe the unrighteous, we can say, well, look at this person. They prevailed. And maybe at times they have. But it's always at the cost of someone else. And this is not the way of the gospel. It's not win-lose. It's not my life in disarray heading toward destruction. And this is why the gospel, this moment of repentance is beautiful because it actually brings, brings pleasure into our life, cleanses us of all unrighteousness. You ever just had one of those days, maybe it's hot outside, it's middle of the summer in the city, and you're sweating from the moment you walk outside, you get in the subway, it feels like a sauna down there and you're just dripping in sweat. You, you start to look around at who stinks and you realize it's you. Like you just, this, you feel filthy, dirty, you can't wait to get home and get in that shower and be cleansed of that. This is the beauty of repentance, the cleansing us of unrighteousness. It's not painful. It's beautiful. It it is the way to live. It brings us the most freedom. Following the ways of Jesus and obeying him is not a prison. It is a pathway to freedom. It isn't a burden. It is beauty in living and experiencing life the way you and I were designed to instead of always feeling lacking, longing, and desperate for more. So, this is a moment of repentance. If we embrace this moment of repentance, what do we have to believe? Right, there is a God. I'm not it. Or should I be? Or ever will be? that Jesus was God in the flesh and not worthy. I need to believe that he is worthy to be my Lord. But with this moment of repentance, here's what we need to believe. That there is nothing that can bring my life more pleasure 
than obedience to the ways of Jesus. You got to believe that. That's the gospel coming alive in your life. Again, it's not just telling the story of Jesus and, hey, just do this and maybe your life will get better. It's, it's actually even there is nothing that can bring my life more pleasure than obedience to the ways of Jesus. Now, a lot of times when we teach the gospel, we stop there. We said that to just repent, believe Jesus was God and that there is a God and you're good. I think there's a beautiful fourth part to the gospel that we often leave out. And it's what happens after that moment of repentance. And it's this. The last moment I want to talk to you about is this. Is that you and I should have a moment of devotion so that we can experience eternal hope in our lives. Moment of devotion to experience eternal hope. What do we devote ourselves to? Devote yourself to intimacy with God and the pursuit of his wisdom. Intimacy. To be known by God, to know God and be known by him and to partake in all of his wisdom. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, if all these other things, that we, all these other moments have happened, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This final aspect of the gospel is to me what makes it from something that is good to something that is great. Even from something that is great to something that is phenomenal. Because as we acknowledge God, that there is a God, and that Jesus was God, and we embrace his ways and repent of our ways, it doesn't end there. We don't become part of this throng of people just queuing up, waiting to get into heaven now. I hate queue lines. I hate going to places like Disney or amusement parks and just waiting in line. I always feel like I'm just wasting my time, wasting the majority of my time for two minutes of excitement. And I think this is how we sell Christianity and the gospel sometimes. All right, now you believe there's a God, you trust Jesus, you've got to start living the way he loves. So now for the rest of your physical life on this earth, you just got to wait in line. Just don't get out of line. Follow the person in front of you, but you're just wasting your time. Biding your time until the end, and then the then you're going to get the payoff. The, you know when you get to heaven, it's like we're cattle staring at a gate, waiting for the one in front of me to go through until I go through it. And I hate that personally, and I would hate that spiritually if that's what God called us to do. And it's not. As we devote ourselves to God, to Christ and His ways, we grow in intimacy with our Creator. We become known. To him as Christ, we're invited to be joint heirs in the kingdom. We become his sons and daughters. We, we aren't part of a queue line. We are known by him. We're his family. And, and this is where that eternal hope comes from. Do you want hope for today? Think about the hope we have for eternity. It says in Colossians, set your mind on things above, on the things beyond, not just right now, but the things the broader idea. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that today is meaningless or that our problems today aren't painful and difficult. It means simply that we have a greater hope than these temporary trials in this moment and in this day and this year. I, 
I know the difficulties this year has brought into my life. I know the difficulties that this year has brought into many of your lives. There's been pain. It has been trying. These last few weeks have been very emotionally difficult for me. Walking through journeys, just all personally dealing with thoughts and how to process things. And it is not the hope for tomorrow that gets me through that. It is the hope for eternity, for all of it, that there is a massive picture, massive understanding that is out there that is beyond me. And the way that I get to this hope is through intimacy, of devoting ourselves to this relationship with God, to understanding we are his sons and daughters. Through prayer, through scripture, through community gatherings, we have the ability to experience the body of Christ alive. We have the wisdom then to navigate today's trials, this year's struggles and painful moments that seem so unbearable. So what do we have to believe? If we, if we believe there's a God, I'm not him, won't be, and with the moment of surrender to Jesus that, that he was God in the flesh and worthy to be our Lord, and that moment of repentance, that the ways that there's, there's no more pleasure than following in the ways of Jesus, well, what about then in this moment of devotion, of embracing the idea that you're part of God's family? And here's what you got to believe, that there is nothing more comforting than having a personal relationship with the God that created you. There's nothing that'll bring you more comfort than that. Nothing. And even in my mind right now, there are things popping up going, well, this, this makes you feel good. This makes you feel, you know, it's not that they're, they're bad. It's not that other relationships are bad or other things of this world are, are all evil and we got to stay away and go hide from them. It's just the idea that there's nothing that's going to bring me more comfort than that personal relationship with the God that created me. These are the moments of the gospel. I think this is what Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and said, look, I know you know the story of Jesus. You can, you're saying it boldly and eloquently. You seem to know what those scriptures, but have you had these moments? Have you experienced the gospel? Or have you just heard about it? Are you, are you starting to understand the way of God's more accurately now, the way Apollos did? Have you had these moments? Have you had that moment of humility to embrace eternal peace? The moment of surrender to embrace eternal meaning? The moment of repentance to embrace eternal pleasure? And the moment of devotion to experience eternal hope? My prayer for you today is this you would take these small moments in your life to experience the eternal, abundant life that God desires for you. This is the story that God wants to write in your life. It's the story he's written in my life and the life of so many others in our faith family. If you'd like to talk about this, my email will be on the screen. I'd love to connect with you personally or connect you with somebody in our faith family that could talk to you about their journey and how faith has played a not just a part of our lives, but has become the vital aspect of our lives. How we've stopped just talking about Jesus and having a relationship with our Lord 
and Savior, where we find the most pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope. That's my prayer today. That we lay aside the temporal things and start to understand the ways of God more accurately and live in the most pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope.